Shrinkwrap Radio number 824, UK music therapist Amanda Thorpe on the state of the art. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Radio. Radio. All the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous. It's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. Amanda Thorpe, MA, is a registered music therapist in the UK. She also has an extensive career as a songwriter, performer, and recording artist, as well as a community, musician, and special needs tutor, using song to facilitate well-being and cognitive functioning for over 20 years. She's worked in a range of corporate, clinical, and community settings on both an individual and group basis. Now, here's the interview. Music therapist. Amanda Thorpe, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm really happy to have you here. You had reached out to me as as a listener. One of the things you let me know was that you're a longtime listener who, uh, you know, listened to hundreds of episodes, uh, which, of course, I'm very gratified to learn that. But you wrote to let me know that you felt there was a hole in my offering because I didn't have any any music therapists. And so um, I wrestled with that a little bit and realized, well, I think you're right. So I wrote back to you and saying, well, how about you? And you said, because you in, in your initial email had suggested a couple of names that I people who are, I guess, were major figures in the field. And I said, how about you? And you said, well, I haven't written a book. And I let you know, well, you don't have to have written a book to be on the show. I've had other people who have not written books, even though as things have evolved over the years, it's just been easy, I guess, to to go with authors. Uh, there is a certain kind of authority, I guess, that comes with having written a book. And um, so, but, but I said, no, you know, I, I was persistent. I really felt like I wanted to go with you. And um, now I feel like there was some higher wisdom or something in that because I, you had mentioned that you were a performer in your bio. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe she's. I can find her performing on YouTube. I'd like to see what, you know, what she looks like, sounds like, etc. And uh, 
I found you on YouTube and I was absolutely enchanted by you as a performer. Uh, the, some of some of the, and I'll, I'll put a link to this for our listeners and viewers because I really think they need to discover you in that way. And um, saw you singing with with a band. I guess was that your band? Were you like the? Were you, were you just? Performing with the band, or was it your band? <laughs> it depends which video you are looking at. Um, I have been in a couple of bands. Um, the two main ones that I've been in was um, the Wirebirds. Um, yeah, that's the one I, I which saw. Which was a, a quintet in um, New York. And then I had a duo um, group uh, in New York again with another English chap who was over there. Yeah. Well, that was another thing that intrigued me that I that I discovered in our email and in, in what I could find about you online was that you uh, <clears throat> you've been in the U.S. a bunch. Of, you've been in New York. You've been in in France. And I thought this is a really interesting woman. And I like her her musical sense of the kind of music that she seems to be drawn to, which some of it was maybe a bit, a bit quirky. Uh, I discovered um, uh, something that was written about you. It seemed like it would have been from liner notes or something like that. And um, it read Amanda Thorpe, English girl, formerly in New York, then Paris, now back in England is a music therapist and recording artist. She writes and performs wistful, moody songs rooted in the English folk tradition, though she remains a restless, eclectic musician, effortlessly blending elements of jazz, cabaret, Americana, uh, Americana and electronics to serve her themes of dislocation, longing, and loss, touched with humor, hope, and anticipation. Well, I just found that terribly attractive. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to thank whoever wrote it. I can't yeah. remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I and, thought, um, okay, this is like, uh, uh, <clears throat> I'm thinking of uh, some of the wonderful girl singers back in the days of folk music that uh, <clears throat> that I felt very drawn to, although it wasn't necessarily going to be mutual. Um, so yeah, there, there are songs that you perform with your young son at various ages. How old is he now? He's 12 now. And, and what's Sorry. his name? Spencer. 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 Mm -hmm. And and he, he's uh, quite a character, actually. And yes. you're sort of like his straight man in these. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're there and you're just doing the guitar and you're like the straight man. And he's kind of a little bit of a card. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how he turns out. And maybe <laughs> maybe he'll he'll be on the show at some point. <laughs> That would be um, lovely. I'm sure he'd, uh, he'd uh, rise to the occasion. <laughs> yeah, and, and a couple of the songs that you sang that really touched me that I was familiar with somewhat were uh, Brother Can You Spare a Dime and Strange Fruit, Strange Fruit by Billie Holiday. Mm -hmm. And I believe 
you got to know the composer of Brother Can You Spare a Dime, which is this. Not the war- composer, the composer Yip Parberg. Um, it has left us, but his family, um, I worked with his family in New York and um, did some uh, work with um, Children of the Lower East Side, which was um, a sort of music theatre program that the Yip Harburg Foundation supported um, because I think in his uh, will he wanted to bring music and um, education to Children of the Lower East Side, which was where he had grown up. Yeah, yeah. Well, what a wonderful opportunity to uh, to get to know that family somewhat. And brother, can you spare a dime? This wonderful song from the Depression years, I think. And uh, <laughs> somehow I, I I relate to it, even though I wasn't alive during those years. But it's just it touches universal themes. And I, I thought it was maybe things about yep. Um, if you look at yep, because the album that that is from is um, it's all songs of Yip Harburg's lyrics that I then either changed the music to or changed the arrangements to. But his lyrics are so sort of um, socially conscious and provocative and questioning. And when you think about the time that he was actually writing those lyrics. Um, he, he was really sort of pushing people to address major issues, you know, whether it was women's liberation or whether it was race issues, um, capitalism, whatever it yeah. was. You know, he was really trying to sort of force um, these issues into the public um, sphere in a, a gentle way in which people were not sort of... Um, you know, too scared of, you know, I think it was like yeah. that slow burn where things sort of seeped in and then you sort of have a realization about what he's actually saying. I thought maybe I had learned that song during my my folk years, but then I realized, no, I was actually confusing it with another song that has a, a, um, a similar sentiment. Uh, Nobody knows you when you're down and out. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and brother, can you spare a dime? I discovered Tiny Tim, you know, who was known for the very high-pitched voice, uh, you know, uh, reviving these songs from the twenties, and and uh, it was amazing to hear him singing in a sort of full-throated adult voice. Have you heard? The, have you heard his his version of? Buddy, can you spare it on? Um, you know, I I most probably did because I listened to so many versions of it when I was doing that album, and um, so I I can't, you know. Yeah. So well, it's on YouTube. Yeah. It was. On, it's I should on go YouTube. back and listen to it again. Yeah, yeah. I've been tempted to. I don't know why I haven't done it, but I I'm hoping that maybe. Maybe that was one song on an LP or something that there'd be a whole bunch of songs that he did in that other kind of voice and and maturity. Uh, yeah, so many exciting things to explore in terms of, of our musical journeys. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was so fascinated with you and your journey that I wanted to invite you to Take us through the chapters of your life, if you will, as if mm-hmm. as if it were a book. 
And so I assume you 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 grew up in the UK. Uh, what sort of a family were you born into? Tell us a bit about that. So back in the beginning, <laughs> I was I was born. Um, and uh, what I would think was most probably a, a restless and wandering star, because I, I have been quite a restless spirit, I think. Um, I was the youngest of three children. Um, it was a fairly traditional um, middle class family. Uh, we lived um, in the middle of England, so it was a lang- landlocked area of England, and we were right on the periphery of the city one way and the countryside the other way. Uh-huh. So um, it was, uh, you know, looking back on it, it was idyllic. You know, it's like I had the best yeah. of both worlds. Um, yes. And, uh, you know, I did spend uh, many a day sort of walking in the moors of Derbyshire and the sort of dales of Derbyshire sort of having these sort of epiphanal, epiphany, epiphanial moments of uh, <laughs> yeah. um Feeling at one with nature, you know, we have um, mm-hmm. stone circles up in Derbyshire. It's a sort mm-hmm. of Neolithic area um, and went to school, wasn't the best of students. Um, I don't know whether if they had um, put me through a battery of tests, maybe I would have had some kind of uh, diagnosis. Who knows? Maybe not. Maybe I was just being mm. an adolescent, but um uh, I, I was not quite a straight arrow in in terms of yeah. Well, you, it's clear from what you said that you were following your own wandering star, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, so I would say you were probably you had an inner genius that was calling <laughs> to you and yeah. leading leading you elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, was it a musical family that you were born into? Um. Well, my father was a businessman and my mother was a French teacher. Um, but there's also a huge love of music. So my father was um, always listening to music whenever we went on holiday. You know, the cassettes that had to be taken in the car were, ah. you know, extensive. And we'd cycle through, you know, country and Western and big band jazz and old traditional jazz and um, then every now and then my mum would get her classical cassette in and then we'd be back onto the yeah. country and western. Um, my father also played the harmonica and my mother played the piano. So, you know, we had a, a house of pets and pianos and instruments. And but uh, Yeah, it sounds very rich and, 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 and good family trips, it sounds like. I grew up in a house where there were... Um, there were 78, so I guess they were called, 78. Mm-hmm. My parents had these great uh, record collection, mm-hmm. and uh, I wish I had it today. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was a mixed marriage, so my dad was black, my mother was white. and But they had a lot of sort of classic black artists, the ink spots mm-hmm. and Oh, that and, my dad loved the ink spots. Yeah, the, the ink, ink spots flashes, and yeah. Nat King Cole and mm-hmm. the, you know old old stuff like that. So I got exposed to a lot of that kind of music. But getting back to the chapters of your book, mm-hmm. <laughs> what's the next chapter? Um, I studied in London. Somehow or other, I managed to get some 
results and exams together and then I got <laughs> to University College of London and um, studied psychology and um, I had a trip over to Padova in Italy to study neuropsychology which was great apart from the fact it was all in Italian and I didn't speak Italian so quite an interesting experience um and then after graduating um I had a a free ticket to um use um an airplane ticket and so I got on a plane and I flew to New York and I just didn't use the return ticket so I got kind of stuck in New York and um remained there got a job working in the Bronx Psychiatric Hospital um, and did a couple of years doing employment training and counselling with individuals and then um, decided that I was not mature enough or um, capable of working in that environment at that time for whatever reason. I mean, it was also incredibly poorly paid. So um, I got a different job and then I was having these bands. So I started doing a lot of visa hopping, you know, to stay in America. So I was quite dependent on various uh -huh. jobs that I could get to get the visas. And then I had my bands. And so the bands were very active. Um, so it was quite night. a mixed life. On the one hand, you were being a bit of an academic in terms mm -hmm. of getting degrees and your interest in psychology. Mm -hmm. what, what drew you to psychology? What did you know, I. Oh, I think it was, um, you know, the existential crisis that one has when they're like 13 and the sort of emotional derailment of uh, just not knowing how to um, navigate things. And so then you start reading books, and, you know, there was like the Alan Watts books that I would read about the wisdom of insecurity and you know, started getting interested in Freud. And um, then, of course, Oliver Sacks was another oh, yeah. um, book that I wrote, read when I was uh, very young. And um, so I, I decided I wanted to be a therapist um, or an architect, but I'd already decided I couldn't be an architect because my <laughs> math wasn't very good. So uh -huh. um, psychology seemed like a, a better option and, you know, like a... Uh, and a, a good wounded healer, you know, you want to go and um, sort of be a therapist because you're, you know, <laughs> think everybody on the psychology course was busy trying to understand themselves. Yes, yeah. Sort of I always resisted that idea. I hated it when people, uh, mm -hmm. professors who are not clinically oriented would, would roll that out, you know, and I just resisted mm -hmm. it in hindsight, though. <laughs> In mm -hmm. hindsight, I I can see that that was very much true for me, and and here I am, you know, interviewing people across the world of, of psychotherapy and all, and uh, mm -hmm. so evidently it was a, a deeply rooted <laughs> need that I've ended up spending so much of my yeah. adult life here in uh, in psychology. Mm -hmm. I was reluctant to call myself a psychologist in my in my uh, young adult years, you know, because uh, mm. people would would react and say, oh, I bet you're analyzing me now. But in fact, I was not. Yeah, uh, that, that was fairly common. Yeah, yeah I, I, that, that didn't 
wasn't my personality to do that, really. And I think in England, there was, you know, always been a, a huge stigma around psychology and therapy and things like that. So, of course, when I was in New York, it um, was it was far more accessible and like everybody had a therapist that I knew in New York. And so yeah. it sort of changed my relationship with what it was all about as well um, and sort of feeling um, at that point that um, – you know, it was all right if I had a therapist too. You know, it wasn't yeah. like this weird sort of abnormal thing that I yeah. was doing. Was there a time when you hoped you were going to make it big in music so that you could support yourself entirely and th that you discovered you couldn't do that? Or what was the deal? Because it's such a competitive um, area. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, I, I certainly... Um, wanted to make my living being um a musician and i i am <laughs> yeah. which is um you know um i i love writing and i love performing um and uh i i hate self promotion and i think you need to have um a, a huge um <laughs> a huge drive, ego <laughs> yeah. an ability to self promote to be able to keep going forward and yeah um, those are the ones who make it big right uh, i certainly yeah if you're a bit quiet you know yeah and it's a, rather hard to keep selling yourself and sort of saying oh but i'm yeah. great you know it's yeah. sort of um it, it's an unnatural thing for me to um do but in terms of loving it absolutely you know i i love being on the stage and performing and feeling like people are getting something out of it. It's right. Yeah. Special. Yeah. 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 Me too. I guess that's part, part of being a professor for me, you know, was being, being an entertainer really. That, mm -hmm. that was maybe the, you know, <laughs> part of it that, that, that really resonated for me. It's funny because I was thinking in one of your other podcasts, you talk about the fact that you're quite introverted and yeah. then you put yourself in this position where you're being quite extroverted. And I think that when I um, perform, I'm looking quite extroverted, but I think ultimately I'm a bit more introverted. than Right, um, right. Yeah, yeah, I can really relate to that. And somewhere, I don't know if it was in your bio or something that you put in one of your notes to me, was that uh, when you were in New York, somebody suggested to you, well, what about music therapy? You know, you'd be really you could do that. And your um, reaction at the time, on. your reaction at the time was, uh, no, 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 <laughs> can't possibly do that. Um, it what? was actually the Harburgs, the um, Harburg family, who um, had engaged me to do some, you know, various projects, and um, they. Uh, I think one of the reasons why they did engage me was because they didn't want to have a music therapist. They wanted somebody who is a, like a little less therapy informed to do a lot of the work, yeah. but also using music and using songwriting in a, um, a, a sort of educational learning and capacity. Um, and then they, um, I went to see some Nordorf Robin um, 
lessons at NYU because I was thinking, oh, should I do this or not? And I was just like, no way, can't, not interested. The the noise, there's too much noise. It's a cacophony, and um, you know, I, that's not what I want to do. I'm, I'm I'm a musician. I'm a performer. I'm a songwriter, and that's um, different. So I I I put it off. Um, and in retrospect, you know, of course, I wish I'd done it years ago because it's amazing work. You know, I'm thoroughly enjoying. Um, yeah, yeah. tell tell us a bit so about meaningful. about music therapy and and um, what it is today. Uh, it, it's not that old a profession, right? I think it maybe began so in the late fifties as a profession. As a formalized profession, yes, I think it was in the fifties. So um, prior to that, I think um, you know, music. You know, Plato wrote about the influence of music and harmony on the soul and the being and a state of well-being so there's a humongous amount of writing um, from the greek philosophers about mm. what different pentatonic scales or dorian scales will do to your internal state and um always talking about this balance um uh, and harmonic sort of being um then in the 1920s i think it was when um there were a lot of soldiers uh veterans um after coming home from world war one who had um been exposed to a lot of music and people the doctors were starting to observe how it sort of lifted their spirits changed their mood and so then it started to become formally included into hospitals as um a therapeutic activity so um i think this is where the the sort of challenge lies is you know lots of things can be therapeutic and beneficial but then the formalization of music therapy as a profession is quite different because you're actually training somebody to be a therapist a psychodynamic therapist who will then work within the construct of therapy but using music as the tool. So, yeah, and I, I was impressed by by your bio where you uh, list some of the uh, trainings that, are, that have been part of your preparation. And uh, there's a lot of uh, attention to neurology and the brain and, and all of that. And that really came clear to me. You, you sent me a, a paper that you'd written. You haven't written a book. <laughs> You know, you were despairing. Well, I don't have a book, but I have to tell you, the paper that you sent with me would make a great first chapter of a book. And if you have other case histories that you've written, I bet they could be organized into a book. I would yeah. encourage you to do that. Yeah, really. And then you'll really. have to interview me again. <laughs> yeah, I'll be happy to interview you again. <laughs> to talk about that book. So um, that case history was very educational for me, even though it's not terribly long, but thank goodness, because <laughs> but it was compact. <laughs> and, um, and I was so impressed by the specificity of your neurological knowledge and expertise and the way that you coordinated the the, uh, the therapeutic interventions and uh, 
share that case with us, if you would. Uh, and you're also a little playful in the title uh, called a space, space oddity, was it? Space, mm-hmm. is that right? Yes. Space Oddity, um, as in the David Bowie Space Oddity song. So that was a song that we used um, in our therapy sessions very frequently. So just um, before I get specifically into the case study, so the training to be a music therapist in the UK, I'm not sure about in the US, but in the UK, it's at a master's level and you're basically learning child development Um, psychological theories and constructs you are learning about psychodynamic application of um, uh, therapy interactions group theory beyond um, we learn about Winnicott etc so that's a lot (laughs) that's a whole lot it is it is a lot it's very intense and you you do your own um, psychotherapy as well you know that's a requirement of the training so you know we have years of psychotherapy and at the same time we're learning about the psychodynamic process because we look at um the relationship um in the sessions um through the music through the lens of the music so it's like um rather than having the third eye it's the third ear where Uh you're listening to the communication that is coming through the way in which somebody is playing, whether it's the rhythm or the tempo or the um, sort of abrupt ending or the disruptive or the sort of cacophony or the, you know, you're continually sort of um, evaluating what is fundamentally happening with inside that person, how they're responding to things. Um, So after the training, Um, you don't have to study neurologic music therapy, but there is a very specific Uh training um, in neurologic music therapy, which I think more and more people are um, doing now because, of course, there's been far more um, uh, advances in uh, neuroimaging and the understanding of how music is influencing the brain and what it's doing. And so there's... um, uh, Professor up, uh, he was originally based in Colorado, Michael Tout and Kareen Tout. They've now moved um, to Canada and they're in Toronto and they have um, created 20 very specific neurologic music therapy techniques that are, you know, um, founded in research. They've all been verified and tested and replicated. So these are techniques that they know can work with specific wow. situations. Yeah. They've got a protocol that you follow. And the goal is to really find um, the way to then have remove the music. You know, we're, we're trying to the, – the holy grail is the removal of the music. So somebody's not dependent on music to walk better or talk better or, you know, improve their – attention and these different areas in which those neurologic music therapy techniques are um, used. So moving into the space oddity case study, this was a gentleman who had had a stroke and he had expressive aphasia. So he, you know, knew exactly, you know, what he wanted to say. He just couldn't get the words out. When I first met him, he, um, could barely say hello without a lot of prompting and a lot of mirroring and looking at 
the way in which um you know you were sort of initiating the speech so yeah. the techniques that we use is um uh it's called music speech stimulation technique um it's very similar to what uh, speech and language therapists use where you say a very common phrase and you expect them to drop the last word of the phrase in so um mary had a little yeah you're supposed to say lamb now it, <laughs> it happened didn't. it happened in my mind believe me excellent okay so <laughs> things like that where you know you the person that you're working with you know you you started pulling the thought so the the word will come out and then um with uh singing you choose very familiar songs and it's my Barney light over the ocean <laughs> oh thank you thank you so much see so, <laughs> yeah very trainable yeah. you've got a good working memory <laughs> yeah so um you know we started working on this sort of um speech stimulation trying to pull words and then we'd sort of build backwards so rather than my bonnie lies over the it would then be my bonnie lies over and then hopefully he would be able to say the yeah. etc so of course you know one of the things the that, that grabbed me in this case history was that you inquired into who was his favorite musical artist? And you discovered that David Bowie was really up there for him. And so Absolutely. you built these sorts of exercises off of David Bowie songs and mm -hmm. had him, I guess, tapping rhythms some of the time on one side of the body or the other. And a whole graduated, one, one of the issues for him was his gait, as often happens with people who've had a, a stroke. Mm -hmm. And so I was intrigued to see that you were able to work on gait mm -hmm. by working with the brain in certain ways, not necessarily practicing walking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, say a little, fill that out a little bit for me here. So um, definitely it's like that rhythmic entrainment that you're looking for and the way in which the brain is using rhythm to anticipate movement. So the motor cortex will get engaged when it's when you've got a really clear, steady beat. Yeah. The brain's you know, looking at the whole and anticipating when the action happens. So everything's getting primed for the action with those rhythmic cues. So those are things that you know we would um used to for when he was walking and practicing his walk just having you know you, you sort of have to make sure that it's not too fast and not too slow so that there is a sort of natural fluency with his walking um it's actually a technique that's used um very um specifically with people with parkinson's because they have slightly different walking patterns to somebody with a stroke who may have like severe one-sided um sort of um, weakness or immobility. But what you're trying to do is help them move and have everything sort of fired up in the brain to facilitate that movement as fluidly and smoothly as possible. So you need to know what the natural 
rhythmic gait is of that person so they're not suddenly sort of speeding up and tripping over or going so slow that they it's awkward and uncomfortable so yeah a lot of sort of pre-measurement and timing and using of metronomes to you know make sure that we're doing something that is going to really help and facilitate that movement for them yeah I'm remembering this film that was very popular. I'm sure you know it. I can never remember the name of it. Where in a in an old folks home, they put uh, alive inside. Yeah, alive inside. That's the title. Yeah, mm -hmm. and these people came to life because they had maybe hadn't spoken in years, and mm -hmm. and the, the, but they put in the songs that they had grown up with, say in their teen years. Mm -hmm. And big smiles came on their faces, mm -hmm. and uh, th that was just such a remarkable thing. And somehow that ties in, I think, with the work mm -hmm. that you're doing. Well, I think um, if you think about, um, you know, the the sort of development of the fetus and hearing's like the first um, sense to really develop before you're even born. So already you're sort of being auditorily entrained to notice things and then you start hearing the mother's voice then you start feeling the mother's footstep and like a little baby will be able to turn and recognize their mother's footstep coming down the hall wow. and yeah. look around hear that then the mother's voice is so critically important or the caregiver's voice is really important in that sort of child's development and the evolution of expression and understanding and the sort of melodic exaggeration that is used when um, people talk to young children babies is because they have to communicate intention and meaning and the baby has to understand intention and meaning without understanding the words I can't remember yeah, where I was going with this but. <laughs> and the mother's heartbeat is probably one of the first things that that we all hear, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So and very so, rhythmically yeah. sort of sounding. Oh, and, I was thinking about the songs that we listen to. So the, you know, nursery rhymes or the um, lullabies. And, you know, it's all sort of holding and containing the child in, in a manner that will provide safety and yeah. security. And then as we start to grow up, the amount of music that's around us all the time, subliminally sort of going into our, con you know, non-conscious minds, but then how our musical selections start to identify us and how we become, you know, who we are is sort of represented through the music that we listen to, the way we dress, the way we express ourselves and so music again just becomes so key to that sort of whole growth yeah so then on the other end of the scale when somebody's sort of on the decline the sort of outer parts the higher level functioning is decasing but the sort of fundamental sort of emotional base mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. still, there so then when those emotional cues go in then it sort of fires up different things but you know music again it, it um activates so many different parts of the brain simultaneously which is why it can be used in so many different ways yeah i'm 
still with the mother's heartbeat and and thinking that uh, there's probably no culture in which drumming was not present. Mm -hmm. right? Hugely important. And drumming yeah. is actually um, one of the things that um, was key to, uh, I, I did a program with the um, Blue Light Services in um, a area south of London and um, so blue light the emergency ambulance fire police services so high stress position um, jobs um, sort of running into danger so a lot of um, blue light uh, personnel suffers significantly with anxiety generalized anxiety disorder um, post-traumatic stress um, and we put together a program for them where I did 12 weeks of musical improvisation with a group and drumming was fundamentally part of that group. Um, yeah. Uh, and they they all came in going, God, what on earth have I signed up for? And they all left <laughs> going, that was the best thing to have sliced bread, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it was a really, really powerful experience for them um, that was – was wonderful because and it was also you know something that they all really didn't think that they were you know they didn't again that perception of music therapy and what is it you know one of the um, participants was like oh I thought it was going to be a bit of a come by our session and we'd all sit around you know <laughs> singing songs and yeah. it's totally different to that you know it's um a structured group therapy session yes fundamental is, is drumming because again the drumming is something that can in, sort of almost immediately pull a group together with a yeah. common um entrainment and through that shared rhythm uh it's uh, amazingly powerful what's on your own cutting edge these days what is it that you are if anything, is there something you're moving toward or wanting to integrate into your work or take things in a different direction? Um, I mean, I I love the integration of the neurological music therapy with the psychodynamic because I think the nonverbal um, sort of mental health um, aspects are just fascinating and um you know more intriguing in a way um the neurologic music therapy it is what really sort of inspired me to finally go into music therapy um, yeah. and now i sort of feel like i've you know I, my professor would most probably be like dumbfounded for me to say no no I'm really really back into the psychodynamic psychotherapeutic aspect yeah. of things and understanding that um and I do I find um the um the sound therapy the use of vibration sound vibrations curious i don't know exactly um where i land on it in that level but i had um a recent engagement with uh, craniosacral therapy and i found that fascinating and the whole discussion what, what was it again what kind of therapy 
craniosacral therapy. Craniosacral, yes, I've heard of yeah. that. Yeah. And so it's a lot about the transference of energy. And I I just found that like re- the um I don't know much about it, so I'm not going to talk too much about it, but I found it really interesting and I found the movement and the sort of the description of how the transference of energy between um patient and therapist um sort of helps the body become primed for self-healing um really fascinating and makes uh-huh. you know, yeah. sense and um i suppose that sort of also leads into that sort of idea of homeostasis and um i've just been quite curious about where homeostatic ideas fit into therapy as well i yeah. don't know whether that yeah. makes any sense but that's what i'm sort of playing with okay yeah yeah um where was i just going to go oh one of the places i've sort of meant to explore more in terms of the interviews is uh there are people, you know, the music is playing a, a big part in psychedelic psychotherapies, mm-hmm. psychedelic assisted psychotherapies. And so I think there are people who are on the cutting edge of trying to figure out what the specificity would be in terms of what kind of music is needed at what particular mm-hmm. stage. And well, there are certainly like lots of um different you know i was just i i've been working on a tracky ventilator um mechanical ventilation unit recently and um again like mechanical ventilation is highly anxiety producing and when you wean people off um trackies um and mechanical ventilation incredibly stressful and nervous um sort of experience that a lot of the patients go through And there are quite a few papers that talk about this real sort of specific um, sort of categorization of musical um, style, not style so much, but number of instruments, complexity of harmonic structure and reducing the, you know, categories of music down to this, you know, totally relaxed state because a bit like we were talking about earlier, where there's the entrainment with the body and the movement, it's also, you know, quite possible that it can affect your breathing and your heart. So you can either ramp people up or you can pull them down in a sort of very sort of un, um, unintrusive manner to help regulate. Yeah. So I would imagine that with the psychedelics, there's going to be a lot of people looking at sort of number of instruments, complexity of harmonic structure, etc. Yeah, yeah. You've uh, in in your career and, and your interests, you've been able to meet some fascinating people. Uh, uh, one of whom is uh, a major figure in neuroscience, uh, Joseph Ledoux, mm-hmm. who also. Uh, has a band. <laughs> he did a lot of work on yeah. the amygdala and on fear. Oh, yeah. yeah, so he's got a group called the Amygdaloids, and mm-hmm. I gather you've you've sung, played with them. Um, yes. Yeah, so I was uh, the bass player in the Amygdaloids for um, 
three years? I think three years, yeah. And you so were the we bass player. And, you know, we still write together um, remotely. And um, whenever I'm in New York or he's in London, then we try and get together to do something. Um, so, yeah. That's great. And, and you fixed, I interviewed him about 10 years ago. And uh, about his his neuropsychological work, which was very important in memory reconsolidation, mm -hmm. and uh, but he mentioned that he was had that he had a band and he was into music, and it felt like that's really what he wanted to talk about <laughs> more than he loves more his than, music. He's a like yeah. prolific songwriter. Yeah. And Looking so you've, around, you, you've hooked me up with him again. You suggested that uh, it might be interesting to interview him again. And I thought, well, you know, I'm not sure he would remember me. It was the Wise Council podcast rather than Shrink Wrap Radio. But uh, we've now exchanged a couple of emails. Thanks to you. We've set a date. It's going to happen. And uh, hopefully you'll hear it, and hopefully it'll live up to your... I'm sure I will. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or maybe I ought to have you in on that, actually. That's, that would be an interesting thought. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we just uh, we that. just um, recorded a song whilst I was just I was just recently in New York, and um, it, it was a lovely song. It went through my head. I did some backing vocals on it, and it has just been, you know continually coming back into my brain um which is uh i love it when you you sort of get a wormhole song you know it's um means it's a good song yeah yeah well i think we've uh come pretty much to the end of uh the stuff that we wanted to cover here or that i wanted to cover and uh is there anything else that you would like to say that we didn't get in here um no i just uh really appreciate the forum and the opportunity to talk about music therapy because um i know that you do talk a lot about music with a lot of your um people that you have interviewed and so i know that it's it, there's not the void of music per se in your um podcasts um it, it was the lack of the the music therapist that i was <laughs> Yeah, was feeling was the whole, but um, it. I love hearing people talking about music that are from all different disciplines because it, it, you know, it is an incredibly powerful um, and fundamental part of um, our lives. Uh, so I, I just, as I say, I appreciate the forum for being able to shine a light on music therapy and hope that yeah. more people can access it because. It makes such a difference for so many people. Um, you know, we just need to get more funding. Uh, I, I, yeah, I'm a frustrated musician. I mean, if I if I am lucky enough to get reborn, reincarnated, mm -hmm. that's going to be right at the top of the list mm -hmm. of uh, you know to really get the skills because I feel like I feel like there's music in my soul. And but I didn't develop the skills early enough to have the ability to uh, to be the inner musician that I feel is there. But but I th there have been situations where 
where with other musicians who were understanding and willing to kind of come down to my level that were uh, just transcendent for me and where uh, I was able to do things that felt way beyond my ability. Mm-hmm. And yes, I don't it's, know. It's I don't, lovely don't to know. play with people who, who yeah. can, you know, pull you up. Which yes, is, yes. Cool. And so I've had that experience and it was just a wonderful experience. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> we could go on and on here, but um, well, we're going to wrap it up. Music therapist and soul sister, I would say, Amanda Thorpe, thanks for being my guest on Shrinkwrap Radio and look forward to talking about your book when it comes out and who knows what else will come our way. Excellent. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Dave. I really appreciate the time. Thank you. Likewise. Amanda Thorpe, M.A., is a performing artist, a licensed music therapist in the U.K., owner of a treatment center there, and a new friend. Little did I know that she is also a longtime Shrinkwrap Radio listener and fan, until she reached out to me via email to introduce herself and to suggest that the show has been lacking music therapy coverage. She went on to suggest a couple of high-profile music therapists as potential guests. Since she seemed quite knowledgeable, I suggested maybe she should be my guest. However, she demurred on the grounds that she's not written a book. My intuition led me to press on and persuade her to be my guest, and somewhat reluctantly she agreed. Curious to see her and find out more about her performing career, I thought maybe I'd find her on YouTube. What I found activated my anima projections big time. For one thing, there was the following description which read like liner notes on an album. Quote, Amanda Thorpe, English girl formerly in New York, then Paris, now back in England, is a music therapist and recording artist. She writes and performs wistful, moody songs rooted in the English folk tradition, though she remains a restless and eclectic musician, effortlessly blending elements of jazz, cabaret, Americana, and electronics to serve her themes of dislocation, longing, and loss, touched with humor, hope, and anticipation. Close quote. In addition to this description of her, were videos of her, a willowy, quietly sexy blonde with bangs, performing with a band. Two of the numbers took me back to my undergrad days in Philadelphia in the early 60s when I was learning to play the guitar and hanging out in folk music coffee houses. Her two songs that really connected with me were the Depression-era Buddy Can You Spare a Dime and Strange Fruit in the style of Billie Holiday. These performances hit me hard. Here was my then-wished-for dream girlfriend, only now she's the mother of a preteen son, and I'm the father of four adult children and seven grandchildren. 
There's probably material for a folk song in there somewhere. I hope I haven't burdened her with my anima projections. You can find her YouTube channel if you search for her by name, Amanda Thorpe. I'll put links in the show notes as well. Meanwhile, we had a great conversation in the interview, and I discovered what a very well-trained and committed music therapist she is. She took us through the training requirements for licensure in the UK. Her training and her practice are heavily steeped in the latest neuroscience. Her training was very psychodynamic as well and included two years of personal therapy. She sent me a PDF of a case history she wrote about her work with a man in his 40s who suffered a fairly severe stroke. He had a form of aphasia that made speech very difficult for him, and there were also problems with his walking gait. I was impressed by the very specific interventions in her repertoire designed to address his neurological issues and to build compensatory brain networks to get him close to his pre-stroke functioning. Music and neuroscience have cross-pollinated her work in interesting and unexpected ways. She suggested I interview the well-known neuroscientist Joseph Ledoux, Ph.D., who she knows as a friend and fellow musician. In fact, I had interviewed Ledoux already some 10 years ago and learned that he has a band, along with other neuroscience colleagues, called the Amygdaloids. In fact, Amanda has played electric bass in that band and maybe sang along with them as well. I'm not sure. And thanks to her, I'll be interviewing Ledoux again before long. While Amanda mostly lives and works in the UK where she has her own treatment center, I was surprised that she is also an American citizen, having lived in New York City for 10 years as a young woman, meeting scads of fascinating movers and shakers in both music and neuroscience. I hope you enjoyed meeting Amanda Thorpe as much as I did. Greetings, Dr. Dave. This is Jennifer Walrod calling you from Missoula, Montana. I'm a practicing psychotherapist in Missoula and also teach at the University of Montana, your old stomping ground, I understand. Today, I wanted to call and thank you for all your efforts and work to bring us Shrink Rep Radio. Uh, the ways that I have benefited personally from your podcast are more than I can count or um, will count in this uh, short voicemail. But because of that, I made what I plan as the first of many monetary contributions to you in the hopes to support and encourage your work as it has been so meaningful to me. So just a quick message of thanks to you, Dr. Dave, and many blessings to you and your work. Thank you, therapist Jennifer, in my old stomping grounds of Missoula, Montana, where I earned a master's degree so many years ago. Thank you, Jennifer, for taking the step to make yourself part of the paying shrink wrap radio community and encouraging others to follow your fine example. And of course, thank you to all you other monthly supporters. It always feels so good to see your names as I scroll through the list of monthly donors. Let me add, I would like to hear from more of you listeners. I assume you know that I produce a monthly newsletter, and at the end of each one, I like to highlight comments about a recent interview. However, I've not been getting many comments lately. 
I, if you hear something that touches you, please take time to go to that interview on shrinkwrapradio.com and you'll see an area right below the interview where you can post your comments. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks again to my special guest and new friend, entertainer and music therapist Amanda Thorpe. I hope there will be other occasions to get together in the days to come. My next guest will be Andre Solo, researcher, speaker, and author of the book Sensitive, The Hidden Power of the Highly Sensitive Person in a Loud, Fast, Too Much World. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Hope to see you all then. Once again, this is Dr. Dave urging you to be kind to yourselves, to others, and to our precious earth. Let us all come together to see what we can find. Shrink Wrap Radio is here to remind you it's all in your mind. Let us all remember what you seek is what you find. Dr. Dave is here to remind you It's all in your mind Exploring the spirit and the psyche We are learning to unwind Shrink Rap Radio is here to remind you It's all in your mind You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.